Well, let's get started this morning, this first Sunday in uh, 2022, the year of our Lord, and uh, as we continue in this uh, overview now as we're getting ready to wrap up the book of Romans today in chapter 8, looking specifically at verses 26 through 28, the Spirit interceding for our good, Paul is declaring the fullness of the gospel to the church at Rome, a gospel that he desires greatly to come to them, that he might impart this blessing to them, but which the Lord has hindered him from thus far. And so he writes a unique epistle, different from the ones he writes to the rest of the churches, not one that is simply correcting error and bringing more definition to a gospel they have already received, but instead the fullness of the doctrine thereof. And Paul writes and he says to them that he is first and foremost not ashamed, but that he is eagerly obliged to the gospel, a gospel that is the power of God unto salvation, the wrath of God being revealed against men and the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God revealed when He makes propitiation, when He makes payment for them, the ransoming back of His people, the purchasing of our lives with the very lifeblood of Christ so that He who has eternally been just may become the justifier. It is seen the most clearly in Abraham who believed God and that belief was reckoned to him as something much more substantial than what it was. His belief was reckoned to him as righteousness, the very power of God on display. For faith is not magic, it is not incantive, it is not powerful in and of itself, but instead the power lies in the one in whom we place our faith. And having been justified through the gift of faith, whether Abraham or whether us, we rejoice, we literally boast, Paul says, in the hope of God, for we were dead born in the image of Adam, from dust and to dust we would return, but in Christ we live, because in Christ we died. Paul speaks to what it means to be a Christian, the identity of the saint, one who was baptized by the power of the Holy Spirit, who died with Christ, who is buried with Christ, who is risen with Christ. By the glory of the Father to walk in the newness of life, a life which is both a language of slave and a language of love, simultaneously true, because God has an enslavement to righteousness that is unlike enslavement to anything else. A profound identity, life from death, calling into existence that which did not exist, when by the Spirit we are buried with Him in His death, that we may be risen with Him in His life. Men are enslaved to their own nature, whether it be the fallen or the new creation. In Romans chapter 8, Paul said, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. It's not simply that they will not, they cannot, because not simply of what they do, but because of what they are. Conversely, the people of God have a new being and a new identity. In the very next verse, chapter 8, verse 9, Paul says, You, however, you, 
Christian. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. What a glorious and profound reality it is to be born again. To be adopted, literally to be set as a son. To be put in the place of a child because the spirit of his son dwells in you. An adoption that brings forth his children, not just children in general. An adoption that comes with an inheritance. The spirit given to us in us as the guarantee, literally the earnest money, the down payment on the fullness that is to come. For God will not forfeit on what he has already paid. It is far too valuable. In order to receive the spirit of sonship, it required the sacrifice of his only begotten. On this, God will not be foreclosed. And because the price paid was so grand to bring us to the point that he has brought us, we are assured that we will receive the fullness thereof. Our inheritance, the redemption, even of our bodies. And today, we see that heritage in action. The way it's actually unfolding in my life and in your life, in the life of the people of God, even today, when Paul writes in Romans chapter 8 and verse 26 through 28 and says this, Likewise, likewise the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what, for when we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Our heritage in action. All things working together for good through the empowered means of the guarantee of the Holy Spirit who secures it. There is in this statement an implication When God assures us that by the means of the Spirit all things are working together for good, He assures us of that because when you look around at the things in this world and in your life and in mine, there would be reason to believe from the perspective of a man that all things are not working together for good. But that indeed, it may seem that all things are working together for bad. What we see in the manifest inheritance of the people of God is the display of hope 
working for good in the midst of full frontal futility, which is exactly what Paul has been talking about. If you go back up the page, just to verse 18, Paul says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, that which may on the surface appear to be for the bad, that I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy with comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. Because here's the situation. The creation waits with eager longing for the revelation of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. And now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes in what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Nowhere can the Glory of the inheritance of the children of God be so clearly seen as it is seen in the midst of futility. The creation was subjected to futility. Literally, the word means worthless, undone, a busted reed, a sprung hinge. A collapsed lawn chair. And the fact that it was subjected to futility in sin resulted in it being insufficient to bring about any good purpose. And yet, in the midst of this futility, something that is its absolute polar opposite. A creation subjected to futility by its creator as the result of the fall and the new creation. The first fruits of hope according to the Spirit. There could not be a more dramatic contrast. If you want to look and see what the new creation, what the inheritance, what the Spirit that indwells that cause us to cry, Abba, Father, really looks like the only place that you can see it in its clarity is when it is set against the backdrop of the futility of a fallen world. This world groans, and we groan along with it, Paul says. And yet... Even though there is great suffering on the part of the Christian, as a matter of fact, in verses 16 and 17, Paul says the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him, there is no doubt that if we're going to be indwelled by the Spirit of God's Son, and that spirit is a spirit that willfully suffered for the glory of God, there is no doubt that we too will also suffer. However, 
The groaning that is being spoken of here is not a groaning that comes through suffering. At least not directly. Instead, it is the groaning of labor. The labor of childbirth. For our adoption is not yet complete. We are not finished. We have life in the spirit, but the flesh is still dead. The fullness of our inheritance comes, Paul says, with the redemption even of our bodies. And thus, for the saint, the groaning, the laboring, is the bringing forth of the likeness of Christ in us, the being conformed to His image, as Paul is just about to say, so that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. This is sanctification in progress. Man, sanctification is not easy. It's hard. It's one of those things that everybody likes to talk about, but nobody ever likes to actually do. Sanctification is one of those things that you're always thankful for in hindsight. It's never pleasant at the moment. Because the fact of the matter is if we're being conformed to Christ, then it is a radical conformity. Because in our flesh, we look nothing like Him. And yet, it is in this hope, this hope in which we groan. It is in this hope in which we are saved. We have the deposit guaranteeing the fullness to come. But the fullness has not yet come. We have not yet arrived. And so, Paul says, what we need is help. We need help, man. A radical, radical kind of help. Back in verse 26, once again, Paul says this, considering the fact that the creation has been subjected to futility and that we are the first fruits of the new creation that are set in a juxtaposition against it, that it may be clearly seen what Christ is doing and we groan for the fullness of that inheritance that is to come, even the resurrection of our bodies and the completion of the inheritance of God to us, so too, likewise, the Spirit, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. The same Spirit that is the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance, the same Spirit that is the Spirit of His Son that causes us to be placed as sons and daughters, even the children of God, when we can't get it done, this is a profound reality. This, is, this sermon this morning is not technically difficult. It is profoundly deep. When we can't get it done, 
Not that we won't get it done, when we can't get it done. He does it on our behalf. This is grace. It is grace that Christ died for me, that he made propitiation for me that I could not make. And it is grace continuing that when we cannot pray the way we ought to, that grace continues in him interceding on our behalf. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Man, if there was ever an understatement in Scripture, here it is. Help. Man, in John chapter 14, golly, that's been a while. In John chapter 14, in verse 15 through 20, Jesus said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, the one who helps us in our weakness. He will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you, and he will be in you. He'll be in you in such a way that you do not receive a spirit to fall back into fear, but the spirit of sonship by which you cry, Abba, Father. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. All because I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. There is some difficulty in the English right here. It's well translated. It's just that English isn't, it's just kind of a dumb language. When we think about help and helping and a helper, so much of the time, In the Western mind, well, it can be understood one of two ways. We think about needing help. I need some help. Hey, man, can you help me out? Can you give me a hand? I need a little bit of assistance. The job that I have at hand is a difficult one. It's taking a lot of effort. It's taking a lot of time. I don't know that I'm going to do it well. I'm trying to figure out how to get it done. Can you come and give me a little bit of aid? Can you come to my side? Can you give me some assistance? And together, we'll kind of be able to get over the hump and we'll get this deal done. Often, that is what we think of when we think of help. And there's nothing wrong with thinking about it that way because in the frame of understanding in the English language, that is certainly one of the things that help means. That is not what is being spoken of. As a matter of fact, if that was what was being spoken of, that would be blasphemous. Man, you don't need just a little Jesus. We don't need just a little spirit to kind of help push us over the hump. Almost there. Transmission went out on that van this week. (laughs) 
in five lanes of 75 mile an hour, well, 75 is the speed limit, which you know how that means in Dallas. 85, 87 is pretty much what it's running, right? Man, transmission dropped the overdrive and then fourth and third and it's boom, 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 boom. Man, Dave grabs the first exit. I get in behind him, try to keep the traffic off of him and it's an overpass exit, right? <laughs> and it gets to the, and Sarah's praying, let him make it over the hump, let him make it over the hump, man, because there is nowhere to go. And I'm thinking, you know what? I could come behind him and I could give him a little push, give him a little help, make him over the, just because he's almost there, just get him over the top. But he's pulling a trailer. You can't push him with a trailer. That don't work. And praise God, man, we, I bet he wasn't doing two miles an hour when he rolled over the top. And Lord let us get out of four lanes of high-speed traffic onto a residential street with 35-mile-an-hour traffic and a big, wide sidewalk to unload the kids on. It was great. Just a little help. That's not what Jesus is speaking of. What he is speaking of here is someone who is in desperate need with no ability to help themselves, and therefore they need help. This is not the kind of help that is requested. This is the kind of help that is pleaded for. The Greek is a legal term. It means advocate or mediator, someone who gets in between you And the thing that you need help from, the concept here is that if you were imprisoned in a concentration camp and the liberator, and you've been trying for years to escape by any means necessary and it cannot be done and the liberators are at the gate and holding on emaciated to the chain link fence, you cry out for help. This is the way he helps He helps when we have no ability of our own. And this help comes in a very specific context. It comes in the context of knowledge. And not just knowledge of any old thing, but knowledge of the one who is the helper. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, another advocate, another mediator to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him. You know him. You know him. The word in the Greek is gnosko, intimate knowledge. You know him intimately. You don't just know about him. It's not that you know facts, abilities, promises. You actually know Him. It is a relational, intimate knowledge. And the reason that you know Him, Jesus says to them, is because you are the elect and therefore He is already with you. And there is coming a moment of justification, the new creation that Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 8, by which we are indwelled by the Spirit of His Son, placed as sons, and cry out, Abba, Father, the very down payment of our inheritance until we receive the fullness thereof. You know Him. You know Him because He's already with you. 
the foretaste of glory divine. And on that appointed day, He will be in you. There is no knowledge that is more intimate than that. No knowledge that's more intimate than that. His Spirit indwelling us, bearing witness to our spirit that we are the children of God and it's not just a label. It's not just a label. It's not just a sticker. It's not just a designation. It's not your name being removed from one list and being put on the other. It's not the box you check on the census survey. It creates a reality. The very children of God who cry out, Abba, Father, and the Father answers. And when they cannot do it themselves, when they don't even know what to pray for as they ought, He does it for them. Because they're His And the price that has already been paid is far too high to forfeit. Friends, you want to you want to talk about you want to talk about the five solas? You want to talk about tulip and the five points? This is the heart of God upon which the perseverance of the saints is founded. He already spent too much to allow your salvation to fail. He won't do it. He will have His glory. He'll have it. And what that means is when you just don't have the juice... He does. You know Him. Because He's in you. And when you don't know what to do, and when you don't know what to say, He does. And it is His doing in us that defines what the ministry looks like. This is why in just a couple pages over in John chapter 16, in verses 1 through 11, Jesus describes what this ministry of the Holy Spirit in His people is going to look like. When they don't know what to do and He does, this is how it shakes out. I have said all of these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering a service to God. This is what Paul was talking about when he said, You are the children of God, provided you suffer with him, in order that you may also be raised with him. They will do these things because they have not known the Father or me. It is the futility, is the polar opposite of the new creation. Man, you'll know him because he's with you and he's going to be in you. They do not know him because he is not with them and he is not in them. 
Nowhere will you more clearly see the glory of God defined in the Christian as in the midst of a futile world. I have said these things to you, that when the hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. Man, what a statement. I mean, you want to talk about the kind of help that the Spirit provides. Jesus says that it is to their advantage that he would go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. When the Holy Spirit, whom you know because he is in you, that gives you the spirit of sonship, that sets you with an inheritance that you may cry, Abba, Father, and the Father will respond... When he comes to you, the work of the Spirit will always look like the work of conviction. Convicting of the sin of disbelief, conviction of the righteousness that is Jesus Christ, and conviction of the judgment of the ruler of this world. Friends, this is what miraculous help looks like. People say, oh, the Spirit moved. Fair enough. Did he move in conviction? Because if the answer is no, it wasn't the Spirit. This is what its help looks like. The conviction of sin for disobedience. The conviction of the righteousness that is Jesus Christ. The conviction that the ruler of this world is judged. And though there may be futility all around us, the creation groans waiting to receive the fullness of the inheritance of the children of God. This is miraculous help, help in which we have no part. Man, Christians, when will we finally come to a place when we are willing to just give God the credit in order that we may receive the benefit and the joy? And stop saying, well, you know, I, I did everything I could and then God came along and he, and, he, and he just pushed me through to the end and helped me with the rest. Why, why can't we just say, I brought nothing to the table. Nothing. He did it all. I couldn't even pray as I ought to pray. And he is my help. When I am in desperate need. It is miraculous help. It is help in which we have no part. It is the help of grace. That which is impossible for men. For which the natural man, the temporal man, has no ability and has no frame of reference. For in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 14, Paul says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And the way that the Spirit helps us, the way that He mediates for us, Paul says specifically, is in intercession. 
the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. The Greek here literally means, the the word intercede literally means to get in with. It's the idea that I will take your part. That I will get in with you and for you. Paul says that the manner in which that the Spirit miraculously helps us in our desperate need is when we don't even know what to pray as we ought. He gets in for us on our behalf to the Father. He intercedes for us. He takes our part. He literally comes before the throne and says, yeah, I know they don't even know what to say. But they're your children, so let me say it for them. advocacy at the highest level scripture says that jesus christ lives to do this for us and therefore being the spirit of christ the spirit lives to do this for us as well in hebrews chapter 7 in verse 23 through 25 having paid the price that is the down payment The earnest money on our salvation, having done that, it says in chapter 7, verse 23, that former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, that being Christ, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. The reality is is that having been crucified, having shepherded your soul in death, burial, and resurrection, and having ascended to the right hand of the Father, Jesus Christ walked into the temple in heaven where he made propitiation by his lifeblood for you and for me and all who would ever be called according to his name. And he sat down at the right hand of the Father and he lives to make intercession for us. His Spirit, the Spirit of God's Son, indwells us and when we don't know how to pray as we ought, he intercedes for us. Man, you've got it on both ends. You have the Spirit of God in you that is interceding for you with groanings too deep from words when Brian Williams doesn't even know how to pray. And you have the Son of God sitting at the right hand of the Father, receiving that intercession and in turn Himself living to intercede for you. Jesus Christ gets in for His people. That's a mouthful. He gets in for his people. He lives to do it. Man, when we don't know how to pray as we ought, he steps in. He intercedes for us. And this is particularly a big deal because in heaven... 
Prayer is not words. It's not thoughts. It's not hopes. It's not emotions. I'm not saying it's apart from those things. But the spiritual reality is, is that in heaven, prayer is a tangible thing. It's not just as real. It's more real than all of the tangible things that are currently around us. For scripture says that these things will melt as they burn. But what is kept there cannot be touched by rust or moth or anything associated with time that destroys. Prayer is spoken of as a tangible reality in Revelation chapter 5, verse 1 through 10. In Revelation chapter 5, verse 1, John writes and says, I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals, and I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or even to look into it. I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. They sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. At the very beginning of the 70th week of Daniel, the time of Jacob's trouble, that which we call the tribulation, a time which is specifically given the Jews to put an end to iniquity and sin to anoint the most holy place and to bring in everlasting righteousness. At the very beginning, we see the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ who was slain, who is going to accomplish all of these things. We see the prayers of His people, a people that don't even know what they ought to pray. The prayers of His people who have come by the interceding of the Holy Spirit. Tangible intercession. Not conceptual. Not ethereal. But something you can actually put in a bowl and then pour out. How does that work? I don't have a clue. What I know is this, 
is that you haven't been given a spirit of fear, but you've been given a spirit of adoption as sons by which you cry, Abba, Father. And when you don't know how to pray as you ought, He steps in, He gets in, He intercedes for you. And that intercession is so real, so actual, that it's tangible. He intercedes for you. Man, what kind of confidence should that give us in the things of the Spirit? Stunning. What kind of confidence should that give us in the midst of futility? When you ain't got it, he does. I saw it this week firsthand. I saw it firsthand in my wife. You know, it's been uh, it's been a it's been a tough year. And for Sarah, I mean, let's if we're going to be honest here, uh, it's been a tough two and three quarters years. <laughs> Being married to me is a, a deal. She's been on the ministerial fast track, having concepts and the way she thinks about things being rewired, rewritten, top to bottom. It's tough. Sanctification's hard. And it's been an emotional year, you know. We we buried Mama, we buried Butch. You know, we buried Aaron and Landry, and we buried Papa. And there's just no time to quit, no time to slow down. You just gotta go, man. You know, mourn while you plow. And uh Man, it caught up with her on Friday morning. And she was just spent, just tapped. And uh, there wasn't any talking her out of it. She was just spent. I tried. I can be relatively convincing and surprisingly sweet when I need to be. There was no fixing it, man. She was done. Right up till the moment she wasn't. Just like that. Just like that. Pop. Because when a God who has spent the life of his son in order to put his spirit in you that you may be placed as the children of God. He doesn't forfeit on that investment. So when you run out and it becomes evident to you, which was already the reality, but when it becomes evident to you that I don't even know how to pray as I ought, 
There you will find him. Getting in for his own. The spirit that causes them to cry, Abba, Father. That he, without fail, answers. When you don't know how to pray as you ought, the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words in order that we may indeed possess the most profound and radical truth that you will find written anywhere in Scripture about the people of God and His doing in their midst, that we may know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Even in the midst of futility which is exactly where we will pick up next week. Friends, let me tell you something. If that sounds crazy to you, that's because you don't know Christ. You need to come running. You'll find the help you need. Let's pray.